Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline in today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today we'll be looking at, well, a lot of the commandments and some of Jesus' teaching on the first or the second greatest commandment. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message called Greatest or Second Greatest Commandment. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We'll also be going soon to Exodus 20, the first listing of the Ten Commandments. As we consider the question, greatest or second greatest commandment. And I will also add that your bulletin is probably minus, I know it is, minus three or four scriptures that I will use. Um, <laughs> I've been living behind for uh, a couple months, and, uh, and frankly, I've been finishing some things on the sermon after the bulletin was due uh, to be printed on Friday morning. So there'll be some scriptures that will be added uh, there uh, this morning. You can write in on your own. The greatest or second greatest commandment. Small children have not always fully understood the Ten Commandments. Three quick examples. A third grade Sunday school class, the teacher was uh, doing a lesson on honor your father and mother and just decided to get some discussion out of the kids and and that's maybe not their favorite commandment they want to hear at that point. Uh, She says, now does anyone know a commandment that's for brothers and sisters? And one girl shot up her hand and says, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Kind of gives you a a glimpse into her relation with her siblings, you know. Another Sunday school class, uh, the teacher was um, understandably uneasy about having to read the Ten Commandments that said, thou shalt not commit adultery to third graders. And by way of introduction, she asked, would someone please explain what adultery means? I think that's kind of a risky question for a Sunday school teacher to ask third graders. But she did, and one kid answered very matter-of-factly, sincerely, adultery is when a kid lies about his age. She was probably thinking, okay. <laughs> and then finally, a mother and, and a son are, are talking about the sixth commandment, not to commit adultery. And he goes, I know what that means. It means you can't cut down an adult tree. Just the little trees you can cut down, but not the adults. Well, my friends, the Ten Commandments have not always brought the best response from adults either. And that's usually because we as adults, we do understand what God is saying in the Ten Commandments. And we understand exactly what he intended to mean in them. And frankly, that makes us uncomfortable at times. You know, in the early days of America, the Ten Commandments played a significant role as the foundation for many civil laws and as a guide for public life and policy, both judicially and in education. That's the history of America, even though they try to tell you otherwise now. But sadly, such is not the case anymore. In recent decades, the Ten Commandments have been vilified, attacked, and censored, and we have seen the tragic results in the rapid moral decline of our culture. 
Will Durant was very accurate a few decades ago when he said the world has never quite come to terms with the Ten Commandments. And boy, isn't that obvious. But here's why the world has not come to terms with, with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are all about truth and about absolutes and about authority and about right and wrong. So Satan will always seek to undermine and discredit the Ten Commandments because he desires lawlessness and destruction. Satan's always going to attack the Ten Commandments. Now, Jesus Christ was once confronted by a Jewish legal scholar with a question about the commandments, not just the Ten, but the commandments from God. And Jesus' reply in Matthew 22, starting at verse 34, is foundational to us understanding what God's will really is. Here's the account, Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested them, him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, don't miss his answer here. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now I want to contend this morning that Satan's current deception in our culture is to get people to reverse Jesus' order and elevate the second greatest commandment over the one that Jesus said was the greatest commandment. Everybody's all about commandment two and about making it the most important thing. But the result of that is devastating, especially in the realm of sexual sins and other moral issues. Folks, the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment for a reason, and Jesus Christ knew what he was talking about. So we're going to ask, to answer this ultimate question in our title, we're going to ask five other questions. That's your main points on the outline. They're all filled in for you. Here's the first one. Who is the Lord your God? In other words, Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So who then is this Lord your God that it's talking about here in verse 37? Well, in Deuteronomy 6.5 is the verse I opened up the service with, part of the Shema. Uh, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the verse Jesus is quoting to answer the question. So who is this, the Lord your God? I want you to turn back to Exodus 20. This is the account of the Ten Commandments, the first account in Scripture of the Ten Commandments. And I want us to look at the first three verses, because it gives us a clue into who this, the Lord your God, is uh, by reading the introduction plus the first commandment. It says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, here's that phrase, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So who is this, verse 2, the Lord your God? Well, point A, and you're going to hear this right, but it's going to sound like I'm going in a circle here. The Lord your God is the God who is Lord. <laughs> the God who is Lord. I know, sounds like circular reasoning, but in other words, 
The Lord your God is the God who is boss. The God who is the final authority for everything in life. The final authority. I remember reading a story one time about an employer who was frustrated that his employees, he didn't feel like was ta were taking him very seriously. So one day, and this shows you how insecure he was, he makes a sign in his office and hangs it on his office door that says, I'm the boss, you know, as if that was going to work. <laughs> well, it didn't because when he slipped out for lunch later on uh, and then he returned from lunch, someone had put a post-it note on his I'm the boss sign <laughs> that said, your wife called, she wants her sign back. <laughs> so my question is, who's your boss? Who's the ultimate authority in your life? Who is your Lord? See, God began answering the question of who is the Lord your God in Exodus 19 as he prepared to give us the Ten Commandments. And this is fascinating because, again, verse 1 of chapter 20 just has God giving the commandments. But chapter 19 is all the preparation God did for the nation uh, so they would be ready to listen to him when he spoke. But I want you to look at verses 16 through 19 in chapter 19. This is what God did to make a point. It says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. Now, imagine being there. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So before God ever gave the first commandment, or the other nine, <laughs> He put on an awesome power display that basically announced to the people, now do I have your attention? Are you ready to listen? See, he was establishing to the people that he was not a mere god of fire or the mountain goddess. He was the Lord God who had made the fire and made the mountain and made the universe and he was saying, I'm the boss, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the God who is Lord of all, you better listen to me. All right, that's the first definition of who the Lord your God is. Now point B is another definition we learn from these verses. He is the God who loves us. Even despite the massive display of putting first things first, that I'm God, you're not, he's also the God who loves us. Look again at Exodus 20, verse 2. Right before he gives the first commandment, he says, I am the Lord your God, and notice this, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He goes, I am the Lord your God. That's personal. He is the God who frees us. God freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he was about to give them his commands to keep them free. Not to limit them, but to keep them free. In our case, God frees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, but he gives us his commands in the Bible to keep us free and to help us live meaningfully. Commands are not a negative thing. They're to protect us. Cecil B. DeMille was the, a famous movie producer, and he was the producer of the famous movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, decades ago. And as that movie first came out, he was interviewed uh, about the movie, but they also swung the interview over to talk about the commandments themselves. 
And here's what he said. He says, we are too inclined to think of law as the opposite of liberty. But this is a false conception. God does not contradict himself. He says, he did not create man and then, as an afterthought, impose upon him a set of arbitrary, irritating, restrictive rules. He made man free and then gave him commandments to keep him free. Notice this wording. He goes, we cannot break the Ten Commandments. We can only break ourselves against them, or else, by keeping them, rise through them to the fullness of freedom under God. He says, God means us to be free. You see, because God wants us free, he gives us commandments that sometimes limit us because he wants us to be free. God's point is in, in Exodus 20 is this. I made you. I love you. So now I'm giving you 10 guidelines to help you and to bless you in your life. You follow these things, you're going to be better off. So it all begins with putting God in his proper place, the God who is Lord, the God who loves us. And finally, point C, and this might sound odd to people if you're not used to this terminology, he is the God who is jealous for us. He is the God who is jealous for us. A few chapters later in Exodus 34, in verse 14, uh, it says this about God. It says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And I want you to notice another reference like this in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2, where it says, and when he says Zion, he's talking about Jerusalem, his people. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. So how does it make you feel that God says, I am jealous for you? In other words, God loves you and me so deeply that he doesn't want us fooling around with any other gods. He loves us that much. So it's a protective jealousy. The Ten Commandments are a protection. They're a protection from false gods that God knows will harm us. They're a protection of human life. They're a protection of marriage. They're a protection of private property. God says, I want what's best for you, so I'm jealously protective of you. So that Lord, that God, the Lord your God, is who Jesus said that we are to love and worship above all else. That's our first question. All right, second question. Which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment? Go back to Matthew 22 if you're not uh, still there. First of all, I want us to notice, and this is important, there were many Old Testament commandments, and I mean many Old Testament commandments. The Jews actually calculated, and this is kind of bizarre, they calculated that there were 613 laws in the Old Covenant law. And here's how they arrived at that. They calculated the number of commandments given by Moses to be 613 because there were 613 Hebrew letters in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> In addition, they separated those 613 laws into 365 negative ones, in other words, thou shalt not do this or that, and 248 positive ones, thou shalt do this or that. That's one prohibition, something you were not to do for each day of the year, 365, and one prescription, and this is really bizarre, something you should do for the number of parts they supposed were in the human body. Go figure. But beyond these laws being categorized into positive and negative categories, they also divided all the laws into heavy laws and light laws. <laughs> the heavier ones were absolutely binding. You, you couldn't waver on those at all. You had to do them. The lesser ones were less binding and more discretionary. 
I don't know who made them the boss, but that's what they figured out. So they were asking Jesus at this point, all this chaos, Jesus, which is the greatest of the commandments? Which is the greatest of the commandments? But in a sense, God had already narrowed the list down from day one because there were ten very foundational commands that we know of as the Ten Commandments. And those are in Exodus 20. They're repeated again in Deuteronomy 5. You basically know them. I'm not going to take time to read them. But let me first of all give you a paraphrase. Um, they're not even in order. Uh, these are called the Cowboys Ten Commandments, uh, Texas style. Okay, here's the list. Not in order, but just one God. Number two, honor your mom and Paul. Three, no telling tales or gossiping. Four, get yourself to Sunday meeting. Five, put nothing before God. Six, no fooling around with another fellow's gal. Six, no killing. Or seven, no killing. Eight, watch your mouth. Nine, don't take what ain't yours. And ten, don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. <laughs> so no matter how you express them, how good or bad your grammar is, <laughs> those ten commandments offer a great guide to a better, more fulfilling life. That's what God intended for them. I once asked a class I was teaching here at church, I don't remember what class or what age or whatever, to think through each of the Ten Commandments and to take each one of them and turn it into a positive statement that reflected God's original intent in that commandment. And here was my list I came up with. Number one, the no other God's commandment. God was basically saying, totally commit yourself to a positive, exclusive relationship with me. Number two, no idols. Celebrate the fact that the eternal God cannot be limited, copied, or replaced. Number three, don't profane God's name. Speak respectfully about God and live in a way that honors his name. Remember the Sabbath. Number four, make the Lord's day special. Five, show love, appreciation, and respect to your parents. Six, treat others with complete love and respect. That's the do not murder. Seven, the adultery one, live faithfully in an honorable marriage. Eight, be generous and honor other people's ownership, so don't take it. Number nine, speak honestly and encouragingly to and about others. Do not lie or bear false witness. And number ten, be content with what you have and rejoice in the blessings that others receive. The Ten Commandments. Did you realize that virtually any other biblical law you can come up with can fit under one of those ten foundational laws. But Jesus narrowed it down even more than those ten. So point C, Jesus declared which two were the greatest. Jesus just came right out and said it. Look again at verse 36 to 40. When he's asked the question, Jesus, or, or the, here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And notice verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Did you notice that Jesus did not even respond from the official list in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5? He didn't actually go back to the Ten Commandments. He went to the most famous and most quoted Old Testament passage for Jews, the Shema that we opened the service with this morning, Deuteronomy 6.5, and that's where he quoted, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
And Jesus' point was that this commandment in Deuteronomy 6 summarizes the first four commandments. If you look at the first four commandments, you summarize them with that one statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then the second greatest commandment, he quoted Leviticus 19.18 to show that it summarizes the last six commandments. So Jesus said, these are the two greatest commandments. That brings us to our third question. What does it look like to obey the two greatest commandments? Well, let's talk about the really uncomfortable one. It means that we love the Lord God above all else. In other words, we don't make anything, and hear me, any person more important than him. Not our child and not our spouse. God says, do not make anything or any person more important than me. Nothing. No one. In other words, we mentally, emotionally, and spiritually are completely committed to him. Jesus says, that is the greatest commandment. In other words, he's the boss in our life. He's our primary love, period. So if that's true, we will naturally obey the first four commandments. We will not worship other gods. We won't try to make God in any image of our own imagination. We won't use his name inappropriately. And we will keep a special day for worshiping him. Exclusive, total, complete devotion. Loving God above all else. And see, that's what Jesus was calling Peter to demonstrate in John 21, verse 15, after Jesus' resurrection and his disciples go back up to the Sea of Galilee, where they had been from after three years following him, all these other places. Peter's back in his home area where he had worked and lived and his family was. And Jesus asked him this question. Remember when Jesus three times asked him, do you really love me? On one of those occasions in verse 15, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? What Jesus is asking Peter is, are you going to obey the greatest commandment? Do you love me? Do you love God more than any of this stuff around here? In other words, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples that are following me? Do you love me more than your coworkers? Do you love me more than your fishing boat? Do you love me more than your business? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your home area, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Are you going to obey the greatest commandment, Peter? See, loving God above all else is what we were talking about last Sunday. When we talk about Christians, 300 million plus who are facing persecution in our world today who are saying, I'm not going to deny Christ no matter what happens. Loving God above all else is what Richard Wormbrand did last week, as I told you, when he boldly confessed Christ before communist officials on national TV, and as a result, spent 14 years in prison being tortured and abused because he was going to obey the greatest commandment. Loving God above all else is what another persecuted believer um, what led another persecuted believer to write the following statement that has inspired me ever since I first heard these words in Europe when I was 21 years old. This Christian who knew what the greatest commandment meant said, even though I can be arrested at any time, it does not bother me anymore. I have seen that everything worthwhile for God has a price. The price of my life is insignificant compared to what Christ did for all mankind. Everything was revolving around me 
But I discovered how everything revolves around God. I am safe for God, live for God, work for God, and am willing to die for God. With this perspective, nothing else matters except God. One does not care what the price is for serving God. That Christian man in communist Eastern Europe understood the greatest commandment and says, I'm going to obey it. Do you obey the first and greatest commandment to love God above everything else and everyone else? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? Dr. Jack Cottrell summarized it well in writing about the first commandment. He said, to truly have the true God as your God, you must surrender your heart to him. You must allow him to run your life. You must make him the supreme, sole, absolute authority over you. And notice this. He goes, this means you will allow him to decide what, for you what is true or false, what is right and wrong. Whatever he asserts in his word, you will believe. Whatever he commands, you will do. You see, that's loving God above all else. Now, what about obeying the second greatest commandment? Well, that means simply we love others. That's inseparable from the first. It grows out of the first. We really love God. We're going to love others like he loves them. So when the Lord is our God, when we love him above all else, it affects how we treat other people. And therefore, it means we will love others as ourselves. That's what Leviticus said. That's what Jesus quoted. See, the Bible assumes that you and I will love ourselves and to seek to care for ourselves. So that's why Jesus gave what we call the, as the, called the golden rule in Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus, knowing that we love ourselves, said, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets, sums up the second greatest command. Therefore, we will not treat someone disrespectfully, the fifth commandment. We will not murder, sixth commandment. We will not steal, the eighth commandment. We will not lie, the ninth commandment. We will not covet, the tenth commandment. And we will not sin sexually with someone else. That's the seventh commandment. Therefore, we will keep the last six commandments because we love God and we love others. And that's why Romans 13, verses 9 and 10 says this, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. To take it a step further, you're number two there, it means we love as God has loved us. That's what 1 John 4 is talking about. won't take time to read it, but I do want us to look at Jesus' words in John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus tells us what it means to really love someone like God loves us. He goes, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said that's the second greatest commandment. So see, if we love God, or if we love as God did, it means we do the difficult aspects of love, too. That means we forgive people who have hurt us because that's what God did for us. It means we show patience with people. It means we love people with grace and truth. It means we love people with generosity. It means we love people in a protective way. 
as parents, as friends, as fellow church members. In other words, a way that calls people away from destructive patterns in their lives. In other words, if we see someone that we really care about, if we really love them, and they're going in a direction spiritually or some other way in their life, if we love them, we'll try to stop them. We'll try to redirect them if we love them. See, this is where it all gets sticky and uncomfortable in our secular culture today. And that brings us to the fourth point, which is actually the main focus, but we needed all this foundation to get there. Here's the question. What happens if we reverse the two greatest commandments? What happens if we tell Jesus he was wrong and we decide to put the second commandment as the most important commandment? Well, I'll tell you what happens. The world and our life gets screwed up. And everything is affected. God is removed from the throne of our life and people, society, and peer pressure replace his authority. And we start going in the direction society wants us to go because society says something is right or is the proper thing, whether God does or not. And people and their opinions are elevated above God when you raise the second commandment above the first commandment. And we begin to buy into cultural fads. And we refrain from calling sin, sin. And we bow down to cancel culture and wokeism instead of bowing down to the Lord Jesus. That's what happens when you elevate the second commandment higher than the first commandment. And too many people today in America are elevating the second greatest commandment over the greatest commandment. Have you noticed how when we as God's people will condemn something that God calls sin instead of condoning it, people will automatically instantly accuse us of hatred and bigotry. They'll say, you're not loving, and the Bible says you're to love everyone. What they're saying is, we're going to elevate the second commandment above the first commandment. No, see, the real issue is that if we say that, it means we have a higher love and loyalty to the Lord God, and we've chosen to love Him with our heart, soul, and mind, and therefore we're going to condemn what God condemns, no matter what society thinks. And that love for God is preeminent. That's what Jesus says we're supposed to do. Let me give you two examples from Jesus' life of how he kept the first commandment, the first commandment, and refused to elevate the second commandment higher than the first commandment. John chapter 8 tells the story about a woman being caught in the act of adultery. And the idiots that brought her in uh, didn't bring the guy who was also committing adultery with her. They brought the woman. This woman's caught in adultery. She's dragged in. And the people that drag her in want Jesus to stone her. He's in the middle of teaching a class or something, and they interrupt it. And they're wanting the people to stone her, and they're wanting Jesus to endorse that. Well, Jesus proceeded to remind the mob that they had all sinned, and for someone that hadn't sinned, they can throw the first stone, and they all kind of quietly walked away, getting his point. But then what's really striking is verses 10 and 11, how it ends. And we in American culture right now have left off the last half of this. Here's how the story ends. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. He goes, then neither do I condemn you. Most Americans right now, even American Christians, stop right there like the story ends. And they say, see, Jesus didn't condemn her. It wasn't that bad what she did, you know, whatever. But no, the last thing Jesus said was, Ma'am, go now and leave your life of sin. You see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus showed love when he 
protected and accepted her as a person made in the image of God. But Jesus also loved her when he told her to stop sinning. That was just as much an act of love. He goes, stop it. What you're doing is wrong. You need to stop it. You need to repent. So Jesus kept the first commandment first. He refused to elevate the second commandment and just, oh, it's okay, we're all just going to go on with life. <laughs> no, he says, you need to stop it. Another example from Jesus' life in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, and that's close by, so you can probably flip back there, Matthew 19. Pharisees, again, were always trying to trick him, asking him a question about divorce. But to answer the question, Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he teaches some amazing things that show that he still has the first commandment as first. All right, here's his answer. Or that, here's the question. He says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. All right, this is the Lord Jesus saying this, okay? Two genders. <laughs> made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Folks, Jesus kept the greatest commandment first by affirming that God's original plan for marriage involved two different genders, period, male and female marriage, period, and lifelong marriage. That was God's plan. Jesus refused to elevate the second commandment and say, oh, it's all okay, it's all okay, it's just whatever, whatever the vote in society is. Jesus said, no, I love the Lord God above everything else. This is truth, male and female, male-female marriage, lifelong marriage. One more example is from the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It lists some sins here that our society is refusing to call sins anymore because they elevate the second commandment above the first commandment. He says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor gr the greedy, <laughs> catch that one, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's God's truth. Holy Spirit said that. And this is what some of you were, were, were. In other words, you can change from all those things. You were those things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The greatest commandment in that passage is honored by using God's definition for sins and the consequences of the sins. But the second greatest commandment is also honored by offering complete forgiveness and restoration from each of those sins for those who would repent of those sins, God would forgive them. But see, if you reverse the two greatest commandments, things get chaotic, and worst of all, there's no hope. We dare not elevate the second commandment higher than the first commandment. That brings us to the last point, question. What happens if we disobey the commandments of God? Well, I should have said that question differently. It occurred to me last night. <laughs> I should have said what happens when we disobey the commandments of God because that's what I do and that's what you've done. There's no if about it. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 says. I have sinned, you have sinned, period. Well, not period because we keep doing it, it seems like. 
But here's what happens when we disobey the commandments of God. Point A, we mess things up. We see that first in Genesis 2 and 3. We see it through the rest of the Bible. We see it through the rest of history. We see it in our own personal families and lives. We mess things up. Lives, families, marriages, and societies are messed up because sin destroys. God gave us his commands because he loves us and he wants to free us from these dangers. But also, when we disobey the commandments of God, we separate ourselves from God. In other words, one sin puts a barrier between us and a holy God, and that's a problem. And no act of mine or yours can remove that sin or restore our soul to God. No amount of good deeds on our part can restore our soul to God. But that's why Jesus came here to pay the penalty for our sin, which was death. He's the only one who can remove our sin through his blood and restore us to God. Romans 6.23 puts it this way. It says there's, a, there's just a contrast of two choices. The wages of sin is death. Very direct. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an offer. <laughs> I deserve death. You deserve death. I'm talking spiritual eternal death in hell away from God. That's what we deserve. But what an offer God gives us. But see, we have to trust him. We have to trust that he really is the Christ. We have to trust that he really did die for us on the cross. We have to trust that he really did rise again to defeat death. We have to trust that he will forgive us and cleanse us and completely take our sins away. And we have to trust him enough to repent and put our life completely in his hands. Therefore, we're back to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. We have to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. That's how we show repentance and trust. We have to trust him enough to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Total submission. See, that's what's so beautiful and so symbolic about the submissive act of baptism. When someone has truly believed in Jesus, truly confessed that, and will continue confessing it, truly is repentant and saying I have sinned. What God says is a sin is actually a sin, and I'm going to acknowledge that, and I'm going to repent of it, and I'm going to stop doing it. But see, we, all that's wrapped up in that beautiful act of baptism where we bury our old life and rise to a new one. And that's why in most, Christ, most countries where there is severe persecution of Christians, where the authorities or the people, the persecutors, flip out the most is when someone decides to be baptized. Because it's that visible dividing line that says the old life is gone, I'm burying it, I'm dying to that, I'm living a new life for Christ. And that's when the persecution usually starts. There are places in India today, certain provinces, some places are safer, but there are a number of provinces in India right now where Christians are being horrendously persecuted. And in one of those provinces, I read about a, a, a preacher here in the States was ever speaking at something, and he kept having members of this or people from this church come up to him saying, you know, I want you to pray for me that I can, can take baptism. And he kept thinking, what, what are they talking about? Well, finally, so the, the missionary or the people he's working with there, the leaders, explained to him that baptism is a very serious thing. You know, you're saying you're dying to an old life and you're willing to live for God no matter what. So in that area of India, before they'll ever consider baptizing someone, they ask him three questions. Number one, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Number two, do you accept him as Savior and Lord? Number three, are you willing to die for your faith? And if someone answers no to any of those three questions, they will not baptize them. 
because they understand the greatest commandment, to love your Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Are you really ready to completely, 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 completely live for him? But it really comes down to the question at the bottom of your page. Do you really love God? As we sing our song this morning, it's time for us to ask that simple question. Do I really love God? Do I love him above everything else? Do I love him above everyone else? Every other human being on this planet, including those in my home, do I love him more than anyone? Big question to answer. So during this decision time, we're going to be thinking about our life and our relationship with him and whether we've obeyed the first commandment, really. Yeah, we're going to slip, we're going to fail at times. We're going to get self-centered and slide back into stuff. But are we going to, in repentance, go back to a God who wants the best for us and keep saying, just love me completely, that's what I ask, trust me completely, just do it my way. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.